This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. So Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast here at BSPD 15 together with uh, Tony Prescott. And we're talking with Stefan uh, Noctor, who is um, a great expert in the development of the brain. And... Um, so, Stephen, you you started out by, by by laying out this whole problem of, okay, how how can we actually control from an evolutionary perspective the size of a brain? What are the mechanisms underlying that? Right. So, so why are you concerned with that specific question? Why do you think that's the most important one to answer? Well, I wouldn't say it's the most important one to answer, mm-hmm. but it's certainly interesting to me. Um, and uh, my initial interest and it still is my main interest is understanding the precursor cells that are the that are producing. They're the engine for for growth, so they're producing all the cells, um, identifying them, characterizing them, and then figuring out what cell types they produce under what conditions and um, defining their function, their functioning in a normal brain, a normal developing brain. Mm-hmm and hoping that that will establish a firm foundation for understanding disease processes and how they influence development of the brain. Right. So what are the different preparations that that, that you look at or have looked at? Um, I use a different, uh, I use a variety of animal models. So the bulk of my work has been in rat and we do culture models um, where we will inject different vectors into the prenatal brain and make cultured slices and observe the cultured slices under under a microscope for four or five days at a time. Um, and then to make sure that what we're seeing is something that's physiological and not a culture artifact, we'll inject vectors in utero and animals and allow them to survive the same amount of time and then compare the endpoints to make sure we're ending up with the same thing mm-hmm. to make sure that uh, what we see is real and physiologically relevant. Right. So now the, the standard model, if you want, of of brain development is this whole idea that we have sort of zones where, where, where cells are being generated mm-hmm. that then sort of swim out radially from, from these, these zones where we generate mm-hmm. these cells. Is that, is that sort of the, the standard model we should still think about with any brain we look at or any vertebrate brain we look at? It's true mostly for the excitatory cells. So we spoke a, a little bit about that earlier today. But the excitatory cells for the most part, have a radial trajectory. They migrate out along along these radial fibers that are sort of like the spokes on a bicycle wheel, and they're deployed in the growing cortical gray matter. But the cortical interneurons have a different origin, and they have much longer roots that are um, migrating. They're migrating perpendicular to the radial deployment. And... Yeah, that's a whole other field. I, I'm looking primarily at the excitatory cells. Mm-hmm. But now the, the excitatory cells that you that you talked about actually are, are showing a, a very rapid growth in, in terms of numbers, not the mm-hmm. sheer numbers. I mean, you, you mentioned something like 5 billion cells in, in seven weeks, which sounds in the human astonishing. Brain. In yeah. the human brain, in right, the human exactly. Brain, yeah. so, so in what period is that, that growth uh, explosion really taking place? Well, we... We're really only now starting to get a handle on human brain development because there have not been a lot of experiments. And uh, there's studies now showing that um, 
cortical excitatory neurons in human are being generated uh, up until birth, and then the interneurons may be um, just a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. So throughout pregnancy, mm-hmm. but, um, starting at maybe six weeks mm-hmm. and throughout the whole time, mm-hmm. we don't have a, a good rate yet. So we don't know if it's tailing off, you know, do we reach a maximum at 20 weeks and then it starts tailing off those sorts of data we don't have yet on the human brain. So mm-hmm. it's been well mapped out in mouse and in rat and to, you know, to some degree in ferret and, and we're starting to get a better handle on, on primates like uh, rhesus macaque. So now you... Um, so in, in this process of, of the, the construction, if you want, of a, of a neocortex, um, there are a number of principles at work. And uh, what was really fascinating in your talk is also how, how you look at this from a more historical perspective to say, look, actually people start to have some ideas about that process early on. Mm-hmm. So what do you see really as sort of the, the highlights or maybe the forgotten highlights of that history that, that we should bear in mind here? The highlights of the forgotten history. Well, it was known well over 40 years ago, um, actually 50 years ago, that there was generation of new neurons in the postnatal brain. And uh, there was some hints, some evidence that it might be occurring in the adult brain too. Um, and that's something that we began to rediscover in the 90s and, and early 2000s. Mm-hmm. But now, uh, so in, in your work, what, mm-hmm. what you have been sort of also pioneering is is to bring different technologies together to really get a handle on on the movement of cells in in, in the ventricular zone and the subventricular zone that, mm-hmm. that builds that builds the cortex, but also their specialization and and, and differentiation. Mm-hmm. So what what are the key technologies that you use for that? So um, my approach has been, I think, relatively simple, mm-hmm. and it just requires patience. So. Um, labeling cells with fluorescent tags, which became available in the late 90s, so that you can label fluorescent cells and then using an appropriate vector that will label some of them, but not too many, because if you have a field of similarly labeled cells, you can't follow any single one of them. So you need a small population of of labeled cells. And um, then preparing a culture condition that allows the cells to move. So Um, It probably took me about a year to get the culture conditions right so that the cells would proliferate, divide, and then once the new neurons were born that they would migrate. Um, Once that was working, then it was just a matter of being patient enough to sit there and take pictures, you know, every hour, every half hour, depending on what's going on, Uh until you couldn't take it any longer. Uh (laughs) Um, To watch it happen over like five days. These are beautiful trajectories that you you showed in the in the movies that you put together, mm-hmm. sort of time-lapse, mm-hmm. uh, and you really see cells sort of moving inside a brain. And for, for people that normally think about adult brains or think about neural network models, the thought that these mm-hmm. that these actually get up and, and move from one side to another and, and change direction, yeah. that's that's quite you know, astonishing. I mean, it, it obviously it has to happen, but to, and you talked about the distance mm-hmm. that neurons having to travel being the equivalent of several skyscrapers. And so right. that also is an, an amazing thing to know about brains uh, that we don't often think about. Um, and it, there's a special role for the precursor cells that you're talking about. And uh, are these cells that, that are really just there uh, at the earliest stages of development, or do we lose these? I mean, are they are they very it's a great, kind of cell? It's a great question. So, I think the, we don't really have a good handle on the lifespan of an individual precursor cell. Right. 
So are they always giving rise to somebody else that takes on the job and continues on and then they pass it on? I don't think we really have a good handle. So um, does a single precursor cell generate neurons dedicated for each of the cortical layers? There's some hints that maybe they do, but um, we don't really know that well enough. The experiments that I did were overlapping. They would last, you know, four or five days, but they wouldn't continue for the entire period. Um, right. And then the at the end, there's still some left. And what? Do, where do they go? Uh, okay. Um, in hippocampus, presumably, the embryonic cells give rise to precursors that remain in the hippocampus because we know it's now well known that you have continued neurogenesis in the hippocampus um, throughout life. Well, dente gyrus, yep. no? Yep. So um, what makes it a precursor cell? Is it just that it gives rise to other cells? Yeah, the fact uh, that it, yeah. And that's a, a, to me, that's a crucial point because there's one term that people use, neuroblast, and some people use it to mean a young, immature neuron that's migrating. Other people use it to mean something right. that can divide. Um, but, I mean, so, yeah, the so fact that I mean, it can undergo division. That's, you, would it not be possible to take a, a cell, which a, a neuron, and turn it into a precursor? I mean, you could... There are some people who believe that can happen under pathological conditions. Okay, but um, it, under normal conditions, it should not happen. Uh, yeah. There are the precursors, and then they give rise to these other neurons, which don't yeah. proliferate further. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the right. century-old dogma that once a neuron is a neuron, it's not going to divide anymore. And does uh, each neuronal type have its own precursor, or how does that work? Um, I think we're still working that out. So what? different cell types precursors can give rise to. Um, one thing that is clear from rodent, and and it's I think it's being worked out in, in different models, but for example, the two basic types, the excitatory and the inhibitory, come from different regions of the brain. Right. Um, so you have in the basal forebrain in a structure called the medial ganglionic eminence, there's also another one called the caudal ganglionic eminence that gives rise to interneurons in the rodent. And... Yeah, it's disputed. Some people feel that the dorsal cortex, which gives rise to excitatory cells, may also give rise to some of the interneurons. Right. So that's being that is being argued. So when you're um, identifying these neurons and tracking them, mm-hmm. you're doing that primarily based on their response to, I mean, it's, so, so, some markers inside the cell that you can mm-hmm. use to stain them yeah. primarily. But then you're also able to isolate some of these cells later and record from them. Right. And that that that's the proof that that really is a neuron. Yeah. If they were mature enough, then you, you know, or I would be able to distinguish an interneuron from uh, from an excitatory cell. They have different firing patterns when, right. you, when you stimulate them. But at the stages I'm looking at, they have a very immature action potential. It's just a little blip. It's not a full-blown action potential. Um, so it's really actually quite difficult to distinguish a neuron from some of the other cell types that are floating around in the yeah, you can, you know, with the approach I used, you could just say neuron or not neuron. The glial right. cells have a very different response. Um, but that's something that I always believe. You you see those inward voltage-gated sodium channels, and, and that's believable. Whereas if you stop and you fix the tissue and you try to do some immunostaining, first got to hope that your antibodies are going to penetrate and reach the cell that you're, that you're looking for, and that's not always the case. And then... Uh, you may have people who might dispute, well, that marker under certain conditions can be expressed by different cells. And but now, in, in, if you look at the taxonomy of precursor cells, yeah. so that would mean over time, they also will differentiate initially. Mm-hmm. I assume it would start with just a very few 
precursor cells initially yeah. for neurons, right? And these would also differentiate. So, so what do we know about about that process? So, so when do you see the the really the the the, the first the, the initial precursor cell emerge, and how is that precursor cell then differentiating in other precursor cells that then form the plates which really start to generate our neurons? Mm-hmm. Well, the terminology that's used in, the, in my field is that uh, before cortical neurons are being generated, people call them neuroepithelial cells, and then once neurons are being generated, the term switches to radioglia. But there really aren't any good methods for distinguishing one from the other, other than the fact that you have neurogenesis going on. Um, so if you if would compare the precursor cells for the for the inhibitory neurons that are located somewhere else mm-hmm. versus those excitatory neurons on their those, own. Yeah, those are different, though. Okay, yeah, so yeah. already we have two classes at least. Yeah, yeah. Once neurogenesis starts, you there are markers that exist today that you can put on, so... Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the TBR2 marker that I that I used and, and showed in several of the figures, that is not expressed in the ganglionic eminence where the interneurons are being generated, mm-hmm. and there are um, there are some markers that are more specific for interneurons. But so once the development program really starts, and I will have to force you, I give I force you to give me a number. How many different types of precursor cells? Oh cells gosh, would we have? Yeah, that's it's a great question. Um, now, if I'm for you. Give me a number. Yeah. You won't leave the room. <laughs> okay. Um, that's a great question. So for all the different cell types, I would speculate, and I'm just pulling a number out of the air, but um, I would put it at less than 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could be entirely wrong, but um, so, easily so five or six. Do, do, do precursor cells have sort of stem cell-like properties that, you know, there's some sort of equipotentiality there? For, yeah, depending on the time. So as development proceeds, they, they become more and more restricted in what they can produce. Right. So the earlier you get them, the, they'll have a wider potential for producing different cell types. So perhaps some of the precursor cells can produce oligodendrocytes and some types of neurons. But the further along you get, the more restricted they come. So your interest in the precursor cells is potentially, you know, that they could be reprogrammed to uh, do different things. I mean, yeah. so so long way down the line, maybe from here, but mm-hmm. you know, the, you started your talk setting up all these uh, problems with brain diseases, which mm-hmm. involve development, and we mm-hmm. could we could think about reprogramming these cells, perhaps mm-hmm. how some cells might be behaving as they shouldn't and thinking yeah. about the programming that's caused that. It's happen. a challenging problem because once you have a fully mature brain, you know, bringing precursor cells into that equation, it, it's, it's challenging. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. So now we, we are generating, so, so okay, let's wait for five, six different kinds of mm-hmm. precursor cells and we start to generate uh, our neurons and start to build this layered, layered cortex. Mm-hmm. What you started out by showing was something actually extremely weird, which is that these these neurons start to migrate, or the the, the future neurons start to migrate, and then they bounce about a little bit, but between the ventricular zone and the subventricular zone, and mm-hmm. in this bouncing around, uh, sort of differentiation might happen, or they might they might they might, they might divide and form mm-hmm. two cells. You get to get a sister cell going mm-hmm. off, and so on. So, what's your interpretation of this whole process of this bouncing around? How long does this happen? How, how many? How much movement do we have between an ventricular, subventricular? What's the speed of this movement? How coordinated is it? 
So the speed of the movement uh, has been fairly well characterized, and it's most rapid during G2 phase. So when they're dropping down to the ventricle, they can travel uh, 70 to 100 microns in about two hours. So that's the most rapid speed of transit. And then they'll undergo division at the surface of the ventricle. And then in G1, they start moving away, traversing that same 70 to 100 microns, roughly. Um, But that's very slow. That can take 8, 10, 12 hours. And um, the main idea right now is that it's a passive movement, that Mm -hmm. those cells are being forced away from the ventricle as others come down uh, via an active process. But you would expect that it might unstabilize at some point, no, if it's Mm -hmm. it's a passive process. Right. So why does it not stop? Yeah, I think we need to understand the process better. (laughs) Okay. But so far, molecular motors have not been found that Mm -hmm. if you knock them out, they don't move up. So under whatever conditions, the the cell bodies continue moving away. They can stop movement down, but they haven't been able to stop it going up. So that's the evidence pointing towards it being passive. But the ones that are moving down and are moving down quickly are sort of actively tunneling their way to the bottom. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and they're, they're changing their cell properties as they migrate. Is that right? They, um, they're entering prophase. So they, they have a cell process which is tethered to the ventricular surface, and that nucleus is being pulled down within that process. Right. And they do a number of interesting things. So there is this... Uh, this the first piece of work pointing it out from 1935, the the gentleman, Frederick Sauer, who, who discovered that, pointed out that it wasn't a smooth, even movement, but that they would move down towards the ventricle, and then there'd be a little hitch up, they'd go up a little bit, and then come back down. And and um, I noticed that in my time-lapse movies, that that's what they do. They'll, they start coming down, then they seem to stop, they bounce back up, and then they come down and divide. So they, they, they're always tethered, are they? It's kind of like a yo-yo going up yeah, and down. They're, they're constantly tethered, yeah. But then there must be also a form of, of repellent. The cells that move towards subventricular zone must be repelling those traveling towards the ventricular zone. Otherwise, you would believe the system would never stay in this dynamical state. So, do you have any kind of evidence for this of interaction between these these cells? No, th- but there's got to be something there. So, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, there's definitely got to be something there. But then, if you look at the migration, so but if if I'm if, if how I'm, do they establish? You know, for S phase when in G1 when they're climbing up, they stop at a certain point, and it's always almost always the same point. So they know where that is, and how they know that is is an interesting question. But do you see this in sort of standard morphogenesis terms, like there is some sort of gradient maybe of RNAs or some other signaling molecule? Not that, that I'm aware of this? it, yeah. Would that be, but that would be roughly the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, but now if I'm one of these cells, so here I am, I'm at the ventricular zone, I'm going to move up. How many trips do I make up and down? So that would, um, that would tell you how many cell cycles they've gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, they... In the time-lapse movies that I did, I've seen them go through two or three times. Um, so the average is two or three? In a time-lapse movie, right. No, no, but, but in total, vivo, total, yeah. Yeah, but in vivo, um, it, it could be six, seven, perhaps more. We, we don't, that's what I was saying earlier, we don't know the life cycle. So as long as that cell remains, that primary precursor cell remains in the mitotic cell mm-hmm. cycle, it's going to continue that bobbing up and down. Mm-hmm. And um, we don't know if each precursor cell will maintain that movement throughout okay. the, the generation of the of all the cortical gray matter 
or if you have overlapping subsets. So there are people who, who believe that you have one subset that generates the upper layers and a different subset that generates lower layers, but um, that's it's disputed. So right. it's, it's not, it's a problem that the field is still working out. But now, in some sense, we often think about this also in some sense, in, in the cartoon you presented about this migration. Mm -hmm. We think about it in terms of a bunch of uh, ping pong balls that are in sort of a big aquarium and sort of <laughs> moving about, right? Uh -huh. But actually, it, what's going on really, it's, it's not that these balls, the somas or whatever you want to call them, are moving about. It's much more that the processes are sort of feeling their way around. They attach at different points and then they start to exert a mechanical force to pull that soma in, a, in one direction or the other. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, if we now start to rethink this whole process in terms of, of neural pro processes or cell processes sort of feeling around in that space and making different points of adhesion, so, so how, how do you imagine that? There's like a whole uh, a huge amount of spider webs that sort of are being developed in parallel. Mm -hmm. So how, how do I have to imagine that? Why do these things don't get entangled, for instance? How? Well, they start uh, from the very beginning. The, the precursor cells have attachments at the ventricular surface and at the peel surface or the, the outer dorsal surface of the brain. And uh, in the beginning, you have a large number of symmetric divisions that expands that precursor cell pool. The existing cells maintain their contacts and the, their new daughter cells will establish new ones through a mechanism that we don't understand fully, but the processes seem to grow in a radial direction and perhaps they use neighboring processes as guides. So they'll establish contacts and then they maintain those contacts. It seems once they have them, they, they maintain them for the most part. Um, then the, there's signals, external signals, which I, I believe are involved in, in attracting the cells to the ventricle and away from the ventricle. And one piece of evidence that supports that is once the precursor cells begin generating neuronal daughter cells, the, if you're watching a whole clone of cells, what you'll see is when the mother cell, when that nucleus starts moving to the ventricle, the daughter cells are also making some downward movements too. So they're, they're perhaps responding to that same mm -hmm. signaling factor. So it, it's kind of interesting. If you look at an individual cell by itself, you don't realize that it, it's moving in concert with something else. But, but for you, that's a signaling system and not mechanical. So it's not just uh, well, a combination of the two. Yeah, combination. Okay. Yeah. okay. Because yeah. if it's you a need the microtubules, system, then of course you force me to ask you what kind of receptors these cells would have and yeah. what, what they would be responsive to. Yeah, they um, they start expressing some of the standard neurotransmitter receptors in the rat, for example, at E16, which is not too long after neurogenesis has begun. So. Um, but that would not be on time to explain the basic movement not, no. between ventricular and not, ventricular not, zone, right? Well, um, that, I don't think that's been worked out. So, um, yeah, starting around 15 or 16, you'll have some glutamate receptor expression. Okay. But uh, what's going, what's dictating that earlier, yeah. But now in your time-lapse movies, what, what, what I found really astonishing is that you this very rapid emergence of, of different kind of processes that were labeled mm -hmm. by these specific cells, but then also deformations of these cells themselves. So do, do you see this being meaningful? Like for you also, you saw one that was really, really squeezed down on the ventricular zone. It was deforming itself in some way. There was some process sticking out laterally, yeah. which seems completely orthogonal to the direction in which you want to move. So how do you interpret these kinds of variations? Um, well, when I first saw that, I thought perhaps this was a culture artifact, but 
in um, just taking fixed sections of animals that were, you know, you're just looking at fixed time points, we see some of the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have, we don't really have an idea for what's guiding that. Right. Yeah. So but now, from the subventricular zone, we have to migrate further up to actually build a cortex. Yep. Right. So is that process under the same control as the one we had just been discussing? No, I, I, probably not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, uh, you know, what's guiding the migration of newborn cortical neurons, that's fairly well studied. And, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of good ideas mm-hmm. for what's regulating that, but I would assume that that's a different mm-hmm. signaling system. But it's also an inside-out construction system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. While the ventricular, subventricular one is maybe not an inside-out construction system because you mm-hmm. keep on cycling between mm-hmm. the, the bottom and the top. Yeah. Right? So yeah, whereas the inside-out, the, the newborn cells are always migrating to a position just under a structure called the marginal zone. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of cells that are expressing important proteins, including realin, that are thought to play an instrumental role in the, in the inside-out lamination because in animals that lack realin, you end up with a cortex that's almost inverted. Mm-hmm. So rather than inside-out, it's outside-in. Right. Uh, I was interested that you described this process where the the cells actually head towards the ventricular zone and then turn initially. Back. Yeah. So I mean, do we do we have a, an explanation of what's going on there? Is it orienting itself? So what I what I believe is that first process that emits that's being descended down is um, the vis- uh, a transient um, or a vestigial axon. So right. it, it emits that process, and the nucleus of the cell starts. Um, moving in that direction and then that process actually stays there the cell then develops a new leading process oriented towards the dorsal surface of the brain and it migrates away and that initial process seems to stay there and it stays there for several days Um, the trailing process ends up becoming the axon but the mature axonal processes it'll be sending collaterals in the white matter that will be going tangential to that right and then by the time the animal's maturing this vestigial process in the ventricular zone disappears. But I, I believe that that's a signaling mechanism. That's a feedback So it's some signal. kind of anchor that it leaves, and then it heads yeah, upwards. as it's heading upwards. And I believe that it's actually a feedback conduit. So, But now in, in part of this process, also what you, what you illustrated is that in order to migrate now out of, of, of this whole ventricular, subventricular zone, um, we have cell division. Mm-hmm. Right, because we have to build more more cells, but the, the the orientation of this division again seems to be very systematic. Like at the mm-hmm. ventricular zone, along a vertical plane, and mm-hmm. at the subventricular zone along a horizontal plane. Does that make any sense to you? Why it would have a difference there? So the the horizontal orientation for the cells in the subventricular zone, I I believe that that's dictated by the radial glial fibers. I think the dividing cells are affiliated with. Uh, a radial glial fiber, and they anchor on that and are kind of pulling themselves apart along that. Mm-hmm. And the evidence for that is that in some regions of the brain, the radial glial cells are not oriented radially, but have a more of an S-shaped curve. So the division, wherever it occurs along that S-shaped curve, it, re- it retains that orientation along the fiber. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a further piece of evidence supporting that idea is that when the radial glial cells have translocated away from the ventricle and they're all gone, then the orientation of division in the subventricular zone becomes completely random. Mm-hmm. So while there are radial glial fibers, they seem to have a preference. And in our experiments, 
it was perhaps as many as 75% of the divisions would be horizontally oriented. And then as um, that percentage goes down, and by the time the radial glial cells are gone, it's a complete random process. But can it also be an expression of, of just a mechanical bias that you want to have in the system? Like, if I'm at a ventricular zone and I'm dividing, I have to deal with packing and covering the space laterally. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I divide across a vertical plane, at least I, I create a mechanical force that helps me to optimize the packing of, of my cells along mm-hmm. this lateral plane yeah. because I'm, I'm expanding radially. So if I have a small deviation in my lateral plane, I'm at a whole gap in my cortex that's pretty significant. So sort of to, to optimize the packing. While in the subventricular zone, I want to make sure my cells migrate outward. So now I, I, I initiate a division in a way that already implies a mechanical force that is biasing my mm-hmm. movement in the direction where I want to have myself to go. Would that be a reasonable interpretation or speculation, it's, let's say? Yeah, it's it's one of them. So this has been a, a, a question that's been around for a long time. I don't know who first raised the question, but it's the, the, the most common interpretation has been that divisions along a, what I would call a vertical plane where at the surface of the ventricle where both daughter cells remain at the ventricle that would be a vertical plane where they're sitting side by mm-hmm. side. That was initially thought to be a symmetric division that doesn't produce neurons. And occasionally you have a division that's perpendicular to that, in which one daughter cell remains at the ventricle and the other one is sitting on top of it. Mm-hmm. And those were initially thought to be neurogenic because the idea was, well, that top one is free to leave and migrate to, towards the cortex. But... Um, I don't know who first proposed that idea, but my, you know, one of my favorite researchers, this, this Frederick Sauer guy, he mm-hmm. mentioned it in passing in his article, saying this is from 1935, saying, well, if this was the case, if this horizontal orientation actually produced neurons, there's just not enough of them to produce the millions and billions of cells, mm-hmm. because it's it's an infrequent thing. So we looked at the incidence of these divisions in rat and and in a number of other species, and it's you know, maybe 5% or so. It's a very small percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, my belief is, so I actually did a study where I tried to correlate that with outcomes. That's why in the movies you could see I was measuring the angle of the plane and and averaging it across a number of different cells, and it didn't seem to correlate at all. What correlated with cell fate was the time of development. At a certain mm-hmm. time in development, regardless of orientation, you would have a specific outcome. Mm-hmm. Um but still, these horizontal um, divisions at the ventricular zone are very infrequent. Yeah. Right? So right. Not, it would not be the standard pattern. Right. So the, the other thing we've, we've, we've seen now is that um, as I'm migrating out, so now I'm going to climb, your, your comparison for the human case was seven Empire State buildings, I think, no? Four, but... Oh, four, yeah, sorry. Still, that's a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a tall thing. Okay. So the ventricular zone and the subventricular zone will get me to which floor? Oh, that's a good. That's a good point. Um, they would still be within the first building, like, you know, maybe halfway up the first building. Okay, halfway up the. Okay. Yeah. So 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 okay. Here we are, and now I'm hitting the subventricular zone. I'm going to be pushed out. I'm going a neuron, and then you showed actually in some sense gradually as I move along mm-hmm. uh, this distance, I I slowly start to express neural like properties, yeah, like they, like uh, sodium dependent responses. Mm-hmm. So how should we think Those, about this? Yeah, so it's a maturational gradient. So the earliest that I recorded a newborn neuron is maybe eight hours after it was generated, and there were already detectable sodium currents in those animals, or in those cells, sorry, uh, within eight hours after being born. Um, 
as they migrate further along, they those responses become stronger and stronger. Still, uh, in many of the experiments that I did, within four days, it's not a mature neuron. It doesn't have a full-blown action potential, and it can't fire repeatedly yet. Mm -hmm. So they still have a number of days until they're much more mature. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, if I know what day we are uh, uh, of the animal, what day of development, and also how far I am from the ventricular zone, you can sort of predict what kind of physiological properties that cell would have. Yeah. So that's a pretty deterministic system mm -hmm. then. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, so um, now the other thing that, that so, so now we have a bit of an idea how we, how we sort of generate, right? How we generate these many billions of cells that, that might form a cortex ultimately. But what was really um, astonishing was, was your atom because you say, look, it, to generate is one thing, but you also have to sort of constrain. You have to put boundaries on that, on that as well. Mm -hmm. And you, you pointed out to a very specific class of, of glia cells that, that you, you think play an important role in, in also limiting mm -hmm. growth. So what kind of cell type is that exactly, and how did you discover it? So the cell type you're talking about, they're called microglia, and they're uh, the immune component cell in the brain. And we discovered those in the laboratory because we were classifying all of the dividing cells. We wanted to know what were the different types of precursor cells. And these microglia are mitotic, and they represent about 5% of the dividing cells at the stages of development we were looking for. And that's how we stumbled across them. And, and we're really excited to see that they populate and they specifically colonize the proliferative zones in early stages of, of fetal development. So they're very well studied and very well characterized in the adult brain. And in the adult brain, they have an even distribution throughout the brain, white matter and gray matter. They have this property of tiling. Um, but in the fetal brain, they specifically colonize the proliferative zones. And that was very exciting to us to, to see that. Mm -hmm. So we've been studying interactions between the microglial cells and the precursor cells. And one of the observations that we've made is that they seem to like precursor cells. In fact, they like to eat them. <laughs> so right. They, that's one of the mechanisms that we think is helping to, to put a break on cell genesis because through chance or through evolution, these cells flood into the brain as cell genesis is going on and they specifically populate the precursor cell zones and begin consuming them. And that gets rid of some of the precursor cells. So that is, uh, we were not the first to make that observation. Um, after noticing that, I was able to dig up some papers by immunologists who had mapped out the distribution in fetal human brain, and they saw that there was this band in the precursor cell zone, and their idea was that, well, they must go there in order to divide and make more of themselves. And we followed that up by looking at where the microglia divide, and they they divide everywhere. Mm -hmm. So um, they don't go to, it doesn't appear that they go to the proliferative zones just to divide. I think they, they go there to eat, to feed. Mm -hmm. Why why are they microglia? I mean, are they like other glia cells in an interesting in way? The, yeah, so in the mature brain and in a healthy brain, the soma is very small. Right. And that's where that term comes from. So they have a very small soma with these fine ramified processes. Okay. But uh, So that's called uh, a ramified or a resting cell. In right. the adult brain, if you had some pathological condition, they change their appearance. 
they become what people might call activated. The soma gets much bigger and the processes swell and you have fewer processes. They have a completely different uh, characteristic look. And for whatever reasons in the fetal brain, they are just super activated. You don't see any right. of these so-called resting cells. They're, they're just all jacked up. They're, they're ready to go. So, so it's, the got environment a, it's got a two-stage life cycle, this, these cells. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they have this active phase where they're running around mm-hmm. eating bacteria and other cells. Mm-hmm. And then they sort of settle down grow more processes and become part of the furniture. That's what we think, but um, I don't. we don't have a, a good handle on the life cycle, right. the lifespan of an individual microglia. So the guys that are present in the fetal brain, are they still present in the adult, or do they continue dividing and producing descendants that will populate the adult right. brain? We oh, don't know okay. that yet. Yeah. That's something that we would like to try to figure out, but we, we don't but know yet. There's something else that's extremely strange, at least from my naive perspective of these neurons, they're like space invaders, right? They, they, they are not intrinsic to that developing brain, right? but they have invaded that brain. They've from, invaded the brain. From yeah. this embryonic sac. Yeah. So what's going on here? It's, it's fascinating. Um, we need, you know, for our survival, we need a cell to perform this function. And evolutionarily, it's worked out that they're introduced at this time and it doesn't impede development, and in some ways it may be helping it. Mm-hmm. It's definitely shaping the process. But then do they also uh, infiltrate other organs, or they really are specific to the brain? Um, traditionally, the, the microglia are classified as those cells which enter the brain, and then they have related cell types which would, which would colonize peripheral or the, the body. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're in some way they're like white blood cells, and sort of uh, mm-hmm. in having this... Uh, uh, role of you know cleaning up uh, yeah yeah so you have macrophages in the body and then the microglia and in general it's thought that they don't mix very much under normal conditions but under pathological conditions uh, i I think it's been shown that the macrophages can enter the brain but would you why don't we call them just macrophages or or brain-based or brain specific micro macrophages wouldn't that be a more appropriate name for them I guess it's the inherit the inherited terminology. Mm-hmm. So okay, we're we're stuck with that. Mm. So, but, but these microglia come from the mother. Yeah. So this might also be potential from the yolk sac. From the yolk sac, right? Yeah. So th- this this might be um, also an epigenetic mechanism because this might also be a way for the mother during gestation to sort of modulate a developmental process. Is it also how you how you think about it? I don't think about it that way. I don't. Um, I guess I think of the yolk sac as part of the fetal organ. Mm-hmm. But the question of of whether maternal cells can enter the fetus is something that's that's mm-hmm. interesting. So there have been studies showing bidirectional cell transfer between fetus and mother, but what proportion of cells that is, mm-hmm. I think, remains to be determined. Okay, that that is a question that we're looking at. Though. Are there no, fetal? Are, are there maternal? Immune right. cells or maternal cells of any sort in, in the fetuses. But now, how, how did you really discover the, the effect of these microglia? Because I could imagine that if you see for the first time a microglia engulf another cell, that you might think, well, okay, that's some error. This is, cannot really be the well, case. Well, it was, or, yeah, no, it wasn't difficult to come to it because 
um, the first image my student showed me was this dense band of microglia colonizing the proliferative zone. So right away we just did some staining for the precursor cell markers and the microglia and immediately saw them. And lucky for us, we were first working this out in primate because it's much more prominent in primate than it is in rat. So in rat, we can find the same things happening, but it's going on at, at a far greater pace in the primate brain. Mm-hmm. So it was just happening all over the place. But now is there, yeah, a fortunate. is there some sort of ratio then between the propensity of, of neurons to divide and to generate large pools of neurons and uh, the prevalence of these microglia? Is there some sort of, of magic balance between these two? Yeah, that's a great question. We've noticed that there's different proportions um, in, in different species. So there's a higher number of microglia in primates potentially more in humans than there are in monkeys. There's more in monkeys than there are in rodents, Um, more in mammals than there are in reptiles and birds. So there are differences across species. So there might potentially be a way you could program these microglia to serve useful functions. So, for example, brain tumors, could you program them to to break down cells in the brain that were cancerous. That it would be exciting. That that's it's uh, mm-hmm. But can you believe microglia would be can be made into something so specific? I mean, how specific are they in 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 their sort of? Uh, yeah, I don't think in uh, their urge to. In my system, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for how specific. Uh-huh. It seems like they'll eat just about anything, because mm-hmm. we find them eating young neurons, glial precursor cells, neuronal precursor cells. They might even be eating each other. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you ever observed that? No, but I'm going to go look for it now. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so what stops them sort of running away and eating the whole brain? So what's, what, are the, what are the control mechanisms for these? We don't know the control mechanisms, but we know they exist because we it's not indiscriminate. So there are regions of the developing brain where it does not happen. So the pineal gland is one example I brought up in the talk today where they, you have the same cell types. You have these vimentin-expressing, PAC6-positive radioglial cell types in the developing pineal gland, and they're they're just off, out of bounds. They're off. They're, they're just not to be touched. They aren't. They aren't touched. Um, later on in the adult pineal gland, then this this phenomena begins. So that's one region. And in the adult brain, um, if you look at the dentate gyrus where you have continuing neurogenesis, it doesn't occur there. And in fact, there's some evidence that they might be supporting cell genesis in a way. So uh, I think the best approach would be to compare those regions, to compare pineal gland in a developing animal with the cortex where it's happening, and that, that it may help us find cues that are guiding the process. Mm-hmm. What exists in the pineal gland that tells them, you know, hands off, leave us alone. Right. But don't they have some sort of specificity? Because so far you haven't seen that friends they eat each other, right? Also what you have not seen, they also limit themselves largely, not fully, but largely, to the pro- proliferation zone. Yeah, they're they attracted to it. There's something right. that they that attracts right. them there. Right? So there is some specificity there. Yeah. And for all we know, it could be something as simple as ATP. We know they like ATP, and there's evidence that precursor cells might be putting out ATP in, in large quantities, and it, mm-hmm. it might be as simple as that. Right. But now, if it's, let's say, ATP-dependent, then you could also argue, well, maybe these guys are just out there to clean up the mess. And if you, uh, ATP is, is sort of a signal that something messy is going on because we're leaking, mm-hmm. we're leaking an intercellular uh, element. Um, so how about we just interpret these microglia as 
sitting in this proliferation zone because this is where we do most of the cell division. We want to assure that we have no cells coming out of that zone that are sort of anomalous mm -hmm. because they can create havoc in the rest of the system. So I want to have a super conservative system there. That is as soon as there's even the tiniest chance that there's something uh, wrong with any cell, I just destroy it. Mm -hmm. So would that be a reasonable way to think about yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Another exciting idea to me is the potential that these cells could be shaping the proliferative zone. So the proliferative zones have defined boundaries, and this could be potentially a mechanism for shaping that, for keeping the boundaries. You know, you stray too far, mm -hmm. you're gone. Okay. And uh, there's some evidence for that. That's, uh, that's something that we're following up on. You already have some ways of uh, intervening in, in the behavior of these mm -hmm. cells uh, and to show the effect of maybe reducing the, the, the population size. Yeah. Um, so uh, and, and that one, one of the effects then is to increase the number of precursors. Yeah, when we transiently yeah. got rid of them, it would increase that. So what, what's the next step there in terms of the, the kinds of things you'd like to be able to do with the microglia? We're developing culture models to put precursor cells with microglia in chambers and be able to experimentally control the conditions to try to work out the signaling that attracts them to them. That's one thing that we're doing. Um, we're also trying to repopulate so you could delete the microglia from a slice and repopulating them with microglia from different aged animals to see if there's any different function. But once, you know, to repopulate them, you, you could isolate them from a postnatal brain and that process in and of itself changes them. You know, there's there's caveats with everything, but those are the sorts of things that we're that we're we'll be trying. But are you able to say already that um, microglia are a critical part of the neurogenesis process? You know, yeah. sort of if you don't have them, I believe then, so. Then you yeah. have a pathological brain. In yeah, some so way. I believe so. But there's other groups that don't. So there's knockout models where presumably you have no microglia, and they claim that the brain is completely normal, but um, Right. As we were talking about earlier, there are different types of immune cells, and so I think it needs to be looked at whether or not other cells are performing similar functions. Or it may be that there, are, you know, there's there's many mechanisms, and mm -hmm. microglia is, is one of the mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But if they're not there, something else will yeah. serve the 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 job. Yeah, I, I just yeah. have a hard time believing that if you remove microglia from the brain, that it's going to develop normally. Mm -hmm. But now, if if we would turn this around to say, okay, we're going to give you all the tools you want to give us a seven-layer cortex. Uh -huh. right? Do you think you would have the mechanisms at hand to do that? Um, probably not. Mm -hmm. Or just, let's say, a cortex that is twice as thick. Twice as thick. Mm -hmm. uh, we would need to extend the length of neurogenesis, so... Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, we need to figure out what's promoting it. They, they enter a phase where the primary precursor cells are in a steady state. They continue dividing and each division produces a, a copy of themselves and a neuronal daughter cell. And they, they maintain that. So they appear, you know, in, in ferrets, they're in that period longer than they are in rats. And in primates, they're in that period for even longer than they are in ferrets. So I, we need to figure out what the signal is that promotes that and and what ends it. Right. But when you're comparing primates, ferrets, and rats, yeah. are you seeing any big differences, for instance, in the primates in the way that uh, this process is working, which will explain 
We're doing those experiments now. So we have okay. 10, 10 monkeys that we've saved up, and we're hopefully going to be getting the answer. So mm-hmm. I think my postdoc is cutting one of the brains today, I hope. Right. <laughs> what, what, what's the sort of question you're asking there? Then? I mean, what, what kind of things might be different in the primate? So um, the subventricular zone is, is a very important structure, and neurogenesis is beginning before the subventricular zone is present. So what do the neural precursor cells look like before that zone? Are they subventricular zone cells that just happen not to have coalesced into a cohesive structure, or is there something different going on at that stage of development when deep layer neurons are being generated versus later on when you have a substantial subventricular zone? Those are some of the simple questions we're, we're asking, but we're also... Um, looking at how the microglia are interacting with the precursor cells in a more defined way in the the primate model. Any thoughts you might go to Monodelphus, which I know you have in Davis, (laughs) to look at the early origins of cortex or even to to reptiles? So we've done, we've looked at turtle. We have crocodile that we're just starting to look at now. So they're present in turtle. Um, I have some tissue from doves and from chickens and they're present there. So it's uh, the population of precursor cells with, with microglia or microglial-like cells is something that's been around for a long time. So evolutionarily, okay. it's something that occurred fairly early. But we've got very distinctive differences between the sort of the reptile mm-hmm. cortex and the mammalian cortex. Yeah. So are there clues there to, as to what's happening with the mammalian cortex or what has changed? What, what are there things that stand to, out yeah, for you? To be determined. <laughs> really? Okay, so there's there's just lots of open questions. Yeah, here. yeah. It's exciting. It's a really exciting yeah. time, I think. But then to follow up on that, and uh, I could also challenge you from another angle and say, well, look, if, if you look at it as it's comparatively, then you would expect that you, the mechanisms to lay down a cortex are sort of piggybacking on the way I lay down earlier structures in the brain, mm-hmm. the way I might develop, let's say, a brainstem. Or mm-hmm. cerebellum or basal ganglia, right? So or spinal cord or spinal cord, right? So yeah. so how would I have to configure the the specific system you study that gives rise to cortex to not give me spinal cord? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. That's probably at the genetic level. You know, there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, because and in some sense, what what? Okay, the cell types might be somewhat different. Mm-hmm. Right, so there might not be the similar kind of layering, but we also will have precursor cells that will be uh, giving rise to these protoneurons that have to link up together. You might also have to wash out the detrius from from that mm-hmm. system in the same way. So, uh, so right now there's not a clear understanding of what these common principles might be across mm-hmm. different structures. Is that correct? There's definitely there's definitely something different about spinal cord mm-hmm. than there is forebrain. So we have looked at this phenomena with the microglia. And they don't appear to be in the spinal cord at the same stages, so there's there are key differences. But now, do you already see some neuropathologies that you think are linked to pathological activity of these microglia? So one potential is, um, and this is something that many many people are studying, is that if the uh, if a pregnant woman is exposed to a pathogen at a specific stage of pregnancy, that this can actually influence the function of the fetal immune cells. And uh, one example that's fairly well known is that if, if a woman is exposed to influenza in the first trimester, then there's a greater likelihood that her child will be schizophrenic. 
And that's a potential example. There are also um, links between autism and maternal immune responses. Mm -hmm. So the mother is exposed to some pathogen. Her body generates an immune response to fight off the pathogen. So she develops a full-blown response. Many cytokines are produced, which are helpful for her, but they actually get into the fetal compartments and they can get into the fetal brain. And that changes how these cells function because that's what they're built to do. They're built to respond to foreign pathogens, to challenges, and and that that can change the equation. So there's there's hints that uh, in neurodevelopmental disorders, schizophrenia, perhaps autism, that this will play a role, mm-hmm. that it can change right. the trajectory and mm-hmm. and influence the outcome mm-hmm. for right. the worse. So, um, so now okay, so we we made a lot of progress in some sense. <laughs> In an understanding of how a cortex is built, and also what, what we hear now, there's still many, many questions to be answered, and hopefully you will find those answers anytime soon. But, but in this whole trajectory that, that you're on, understanding the developing brain, what is uh, Stephen's law that we should follow to understand the brain? What is Stephen's law mm-hmm. that we should follow? Um, I think we're still working that out. <laughs> we're, we're still, I like to say that what we do in the lab or my approach, my, my way of looking at things is that we're defining normal, um, understanding very well what's going on during normal development. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now Tony likes traveling, so he'll be in Davis soon. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so five years from now, he'll be there <laughs> and he's going to go, he's going to come to your lab and visit you and he's going to, he's going to pull out this piece of paper that says, okay, Stephen, five years ago, you made this prediction and you, and you told me that now you're going to give me the answer. So what's the main prediction you would like to sort of commit yourself to today that Tony's going to get the answer to five years from now? The, the signaling that controls the colonization and the interaction between microglia and, and precursor cells. Mm-hmm. I would really hope that we could have that figured out before five years. Mm-hmm. All right. Stephen that's perhaps Nocter. ambitious, but that's what, we're, that's what we're hoping for. Okay. Stephen Nocter, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomedics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.